Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco, Trevor Adams, and at various points, my son Charlie, uh, who is makes his little voice heard um, usually when I'm talking, so that made it actually kind of hard to edit it out. Uh, but uh, I hope that you enjoy Book 11 of the Confessions, where we discuss the nature of time as under as Augustine understands it, time's relationship uh, uh, from the creation of time and to God's relationship to time uh, and uh, and then Christ coming in time. Uh, I would also just like to say thank you uh, right now to Richard French, um, who is a supporter now for of us on uh, on uh, Patreon. So he's making it possible for us to keep the podcast going and to keep the back catalog available. Uh, which is part of a major part of the costs uh, of the cost for keeping this podcast hosted. So thank you to to Richard French. Um, and one person actually benefited from his support. Um, someone named Becky on iTunes who said that she really appreciates uh, the three of our podcasts and going back through the catalog. And so she's actually started from the beginning and just wrote us a review. Uh, so we appreciate that, Becky, um, and appreciate your support. Um, Richard, who helped make that available so that Becky could go back through. So if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can at uh, patreon.com slash ahoct, A-H-O-C-T. And so we appreciate your reviews, your ratings, um, and your support on Facebook and iTunes and Patreon and all of that. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and uh, next week, uh, or well, the next podcast will be a recording of books 12 and 13, where we will finish the confessions. Um, and I think I may have said this uh, on one other intro a while back, but our plan is to um, kind of go laterally in Christian history and actually talk for a moment about Jerome. Um, and one little interesting thing that he wrote, uh, which is not cited all that frequently, but um, will bring in an interesting question of um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, and so where that doctrine comes from in the Catholic Church and what Jerome thinks about it, and then what can three uh, Protestants make of this doctrine. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we uh, hope you enjoy it. All right, so I'm, I just hit record. Um, so we have uh, just finished a couple podcasts on book 10. Um, we are moving on to book 11. So we ha- uh, we're going to continue down uh, the, to, to the end of the confessions. Book 11 is another um, sort of, you could almost say that it, it is a, a book unto itself. It's, it's a, a mostly about time. Um, and so kind of what happens at the end of the confessions is Augustine just sort of takes what appear to be sort of individual sort of philosophical topics and explores them as prayers to God. Um, so last time we did some stuff on memory, this time we're doing some stuff on time. Um, and so it's, it, you know, it, it proposes all these problems as we discussed a, a little bit last time uh, about how to, or how to think about the organization of the confessions. To me, it just reiterates the fact that this is Augustine's attempt to, um, to sort of say that his life is an investigation of his own soul's progress towards union with God, but he also thinks that it's sort of a general path for anyone to follow. And here are some sort of like things that you could consider if, as you think about your own soul's path to God. Um, you think about time, you think about where we came from, you think about 
um, you know, what has happened in your life. Um, and then you confess and you praise, right? So it's always important to remember uh, throughout this book that confessio in Latin, conf- uh, confiteri, the verb, um, can be both translated in English as praise and confess. Um, so those two are integri- integrally related concepts for Augustine. Um, so whenever he looks at something that he needs to confess as sin, he is also praising God who is good. And he is being remade into the image of God through his confession of sin and his praise of God um, who is making him um, into uh, the perfect image of Christ, right? So um, through Christ, the mediator, um, he is actually becoming more like Christ. So that is the, to me, that is like what you have to think about here. So now he's going to go back through his memories. And actually what starts his question about memory is he wants to say, well, where did we come from and who made us? And was that thing before time? Um and, and so the very first, be, the beginning of book 11, because eternity is yours, Lord, can you be unaware of what I'm telling you? Can you be within time when you see what happens in time? So why am I regaling you in this way? There's so many stories about what happened. Um, it is certainly not so that I can make you aware of such events. Um, so he's sort of saying, okay, where, where do you fit, Lord, in this whole question of time? Um, so that's my kind of general uh, introduction to Book Eleven. I mean, Augustine uh, is you know still current and relevant in these thoughts on time, at least in um, certain uh, f- philosophical conversations. Trevor can give us maybe uh, more uh, thought about that, but but I can say that the distensio animi, the distension of the soul or the mind in time, um, is at least still something bandied about by contra- uh, continental philosophers, Paul Ricoeur among others. Um, so whether or not that's, uh, that's not really the kind of philosophy that Trevor does, but, uh, <laughs> uh but, but it's still a, still a conversation piece. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so yeah. still relevant. Yeah. Trevor yeah. disdains that. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> Actually, you know, just because you mentioned it, I will, um, point out the fact, and this actually jumps ahead of the first thing I wanted to point out. But um, you talking about the distension of the mind in time, Uh Um, you know, one of the things that I love about reading uh, Augustine, especially and the medievals in general, not that I guess he counts as a medieval, but just thinking of where philosophy will go after him is how much their philosophy kind of um, really hailed uh, philosophical ideas that will become famous and, and well known during the Enlightenment. Um, making Enlightenment philosophers basically, uh, what sort I'm looking for, uh, uh, plagiarists maybe or something like that. <laughs> like I think of, for instance, Rene Descartes, right, and uh, his methodological doubt where he gets to the point where he's, you know, doubting everything until he says, I doubt, or uh, uh, until he says, comes to the conclusion that the one thing he can't doubt is that he is a thinking thing, right? I think, therefore, I am. That comes straight from Augustine, uh, who did the exact yeah, it, same. It does and it doesn't. I, I, that makes me a little uncomfortable because I don't think that the kind of um, episode, like sort of the, well, at least the reading of Descartes that happens through Hume and others, um, the idea that there can be certainty um, in the way that uh, Descartes and then later Hume and others thought about certainty um, I think that's pretty far from what Augustine was trying to do. Um, at least whatever we want to call certainty looks pretty different to him. Um, and so I, at least where the, well, the Descartes 
strategic con- uh, conversation goes, um, goes pretty far afield from where Augustine was. Plus, he has his own sort of um, nisi falor sum. I mean, he has his own kind of um, cogito, um, and and it's it's looks it's a little it's stated a little differently. So I think that there's a relationship between Augustine and Descartes, uh, but he's he wants to go in a yeah. But if you abstract away and you're just looking at the general argument structure, which I know that you know a lot of good scholars say Descartes wasn't giving an argument he didn't think of it as an argument blah 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 despite all that the it is interesting to see that the argument by Descartes was was arguably anticipated by Augustine I mean that's the part that I think is that what you're saying Tom yeah I mean and I mean I don't know to what degree Descartes reading those guys but I mean I don't think it's nothing that not only does he do that and I'd be interested I, I don't want to spend time on it right now Chad just because I feel like it would take us a field from what yeah. I, where I really was going I'd be interested in hearing kind of a more thoroughly explained argument as to why they weren't I mean I know the context is not exactly the same but how I recall it is uh, Augustine was trying to figure out what he could know kind of like Descartes was and was seeing what he could doubt and he got to the point where he said I doubt therefore I am which seems pretty close to what Descartes doing in the meditation but then later on, just kind of following that same line of thinking, right? Descartes presents the ontological argument for God's existence um, similarly. And I don't think Descartes would have ever said he's coming out, coming up with this stuff whole cloth. I mean, like, you know, which is, but that's Anselm's argument, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in any case, that was really the point I was making. I mean, I'm sure there are differences in the context, but I don't know that, I don't know that they're, uh, that they're unrelated in a way that, or I, I, I think I still think they're related in a way that is I- interesting. Um, but I think they are related in a way that's interesting. I think that's fair. I think Descartes has to end in solipsism. I'm not sure that Augustine does. Uh, well, Descartes doesn't believe he ends in solipsism. No, but, but I think the the I think that the reading of his argument should push him towards solipsism. But yeah, that'd be interesting. I always thought that it should take, push you to skepticism but i'd be i mean that very well could i'm not exactly sure that those are entirely different but that's yeah Hmm. well anyway um the the section i wanted that got me thinking about that (laughs) okay yep yep is uh uh it's in section uh shoot 2736 okay we're jumping ahead here Um, and this is when he talks about uh being in the mind Mm-hmm. He says, in you, my mind, I measure time. Do not interrupt me by clamoring that time has objective existence, nor hinder yourself with the hurly-burly of your impressions. In you, I say, I do measure time. What I measure is the impression which passing phenomena leave in you, which abides after they have passed by. Uh, that is what I measure as a present reality, not the things that pass by so that the impression could be formed. The impression itself is what I measure when I measure intervals of time. Hence, either time is this impression or what I measure is not time. And so here's here's what I thought of the moment I saw that. And for me, this is actually even a more impressive kind of connection than, than say, uh, uh, or I should say relation to Descartes. And that is that this strikes me as Kant's 
basic theory of the structure of the mind. Not exactly at all. I mean, Kant wrote entire tomes on the subject, whereas this is one little, you know, paragraph. Yeah. But it really, I mean, you know, ultimately Kant, um, uh, his philosophy, his goal, when he kind of set out to do his work, was try to figure out how to kind of demonstrate that the world that we perceive is actually the world, right? Um, and what he, you know, one of his conclusions essentially was this, that there is a world out there, which he calls the noumenal world. That's like objects and things that are outside of time. But there is also what he called the phenomenal world, which is the mind itself. And what he essentially says is, is that the world out there, the external world, the noumenal world, is certainly not um, exactly like the phenomenal world because there are structures in our mind that give definition to the noumenal world when we perceive it. One of those is time. So from Kant's perspective, time doesn't exist in the external world, the noumenal world. Time exists in the mind. So it's a measurement in the mind, um, which... Uh, by the way, of course, totally contradicts contemporary physics and Einstein's, uh, you know, theories of of uh, or general theory of relativity and all that kind of stuff. But I thought it was interesting. I mean, because that sounds very much and forgive me if I'm maybe reading more into what Augustine says here, because obviously that's easy to do. You bring with you, you know, what what you're familiar with. But I couldn't help reading that section and hearing kind of what Kant was going for, right? The impression itself is what I measure when I measure intervals of time. It sounds like he comes to this conclusion that time are these intervals in our mind, right? Yeah. So I just thought that fascinating. I feel really bad jumping to that because this cuts out enormous steps that he's been taking uh, right. throughout this whole chapter. But it made me think of it when you mentioned the <clears throat> continental philosophers right. because the continental philosophers kind of come down this vein of Kant. So, yeah. Well, um, yeah, go ahead, Trevor. Oh, I was going to say, uh, just because we already said it, a note on that Kant point, there is a view now about Kant that's called like the two aspect view rather than the sort of two world or two domain view, which is sort of what uh, you just said, Tom, kind of the, there's mm -hmm. the noumenal world, there's the phenomenal world, and they're different ways. Or two realms, maybe you might say. There is one way where these people, um, I think Henry Allison, Harry? Yeah, Allison, I think, is the main scholar who proposes this, says that really it's it's just aspects of the one thing. There is just one world, but there's just two aspects. And so, and the noumenals just sort of epistemically closed off to us, of course. Hmm. And then, so the phenomenal is what we're like sort of getting. And, uh, and our minds do arrange the world in such a way. Um, and time is one of those things that it sort of imposes. Um, and they would think that their views are actually consistent with uh, physics. And, um, and to bring this back to Augustine, um, I actually also thought, but I was sort of more thinking of this sort of more two aspect type of view, I was actually thinking this actually sort of fit with this section of Augustine here. I was like, 
Okay, yeah, this is not that this this isn't I wouldn't call this like straight up Kantian, but I would say this also, um, you know, could inspire Kant, for example, if, if he had read it at all, I, you know, for all I know. But anyway, yeah, I think yeah. that I think that's helpful. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know Kant well enough um, either. But um, I mean, the thing the the thing that always always intrigued me about philosophy and one thing that I sort of like about the idea of sort of classical education or a Western education um, is that I, you know to what whatever extent Descartes or Kant their ideas you know sort of tweak Augustine or tweak uh, Plato or whatever um, the fact that they're all that they we're having this conversation where we think about all of these different people this is what always like enticed me about philosophy you are jumping into one big giant conversation where we're kind of still bouncing ideas off of um, you know different people within the tradition and so you can sort of say well it reminds me of this and it reminds me of that and they probably read some of this and they probably read some of that and then you know we're all in this process of trying to figure it out for ourselves how should we understand time um and we may think that kant is totally wrong or we may think that augustine is totally wrong but i still just love the fact that you felt like you were part of a thread um and you were part of a thread of a conversation that could include all of these people mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I have a little bit of a pet peeve that probably makes me see this stuff a little more readily at this point in my life, but I don't think it's unfounded. I, I have a pet peeve in that this there's a narrative out there that is pretty... I don't think it's as well accepted amongst actual historians, especially historians of philosophy. I might be wrong on that, but it seems to be more of a pop idea. But it's this idea that Basically, after the fall of the Roman Empire, we were kind of morons for a long time. And then, thankfully, the Enlightenment came and awakened us, right? Yeah. Um, kind of ignoring this enormous body of work stretching, you know, from Augustine all the way up through the Enlightenment period, in which there was a lot of really great, thoughtful, uh, insightful stuff uh, about the world, right, um, that heavily impacted uh, the Enlightenment philosophers, um, the Enlightenment philosophers. I am, you know, to whatever degree their comp or their uh, contexts are different, or to whatever degree they read each other, they were not operating in a vacuum. They weren't just creating this stuff. You know, um, there was good stuff beforehand. I guess that's kind of. Although, yeah, I mean, I think the, the narrative that you're discussing is something that I, too, would like to resist, but it's sort of an Enlightenment narrative, right? I mean, the very idea that we call yeah. it the Enlightenment, and I think Francis Bacon says, why why would we ever look past? Everything is looking forward. Um, and, you know, this is, um, and, and oh, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little hard. Uh, I think Gibbon plays into this as well, right? So Gibbon tells the rise and fall of Rome, and from then on, everyone's trying to figure out um, how Rome fell. When, in fact, the the people, the you know, there were people that called themselves Romans through the 15th century in Greece. Um, so, to, you know, right, again, <laughs> again, I don't know if we want to call that continuous with uh, the, the Roman emperors that we norm normally think. For one, they spoke Greek, not Latin, uh, but they called themselves Romeoi. Um, uh, and so anyway, but yeah, fair point. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. My, uh, general impression of this book 11, by the way, was, uh, 
Augustine's an A theorist when it comes to time. Okay. And he doesn't you find that. And he doesn't give uh, that great of arguments for it. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, for me, that's this is what I was keeping my eye on the whole time. I'm like, oh, so what's he going to come down on? Like, is he going to be an A theorist or B theorist? And by A theory and B theory, I mean two views that are often opposed in the philosophy of time. Um, this is a topic in metaphysics. It's actually been a while since I've studied philosophy of time uh, itself, but it came up a little bit in a metaphysics seminar I had recently. So some of this is still fresh in my mind, but uh, the two views are there's the, there's see, there's several different versions of this, but there's those who believe that the past, present, and future exist. They all exist objectively. Um, and they use a lot of tenseless verbs to sort of describe um, uh, mo modes of existence is how they talk about it. Instead of saying like when things existed, such and such. And these th people are often called bee theorists and it's sort of supposed to be more consistent with physics today. And they, there's, there's like a, a lot of different versions of it, but it, they often describe every uh, object as being a four dimensional time worm. So you have spatial uh, dimensions and you also have dimensions in like this worm time worm as they'll say basically imagining the universe sort of stretched out through time the whole thing objectively exists um you know and when we use words like here uh spatially it there is no objective here if i say here i mean lincoln nebraska if you said here you mean you know missouri or idaho um and they think the same as with the word now it, it's the it's the same idea. There's, so there's no objective present. Um, there is no coming to be that the future already exists, the past still exists. Um, and how they explain movement through time is that's sort of where you get into the details of B theory. They all sort of debate on that. There's like the moving spotlight theory and growing block theory, so on and so forth. Um, a, theory, a theorists are the opposite. They think the present objectively exists um, and the future comes to be and the past was. So it's more of like, it's often touted as more of the common sense view. And there was moments in this uh, chapter where uh, I thought, I was like, oh, he's kind of given some arguments for B theory here. Uh, saying things like, if after all the future did not exist, how could prophets foretell it? There'd be nothing to foretell. And I was like, oh, no, what's how, where is he going to come down? But he, he seems to come down on a theory. He ends up saying, like, uh, what should be clear and obvious by now is that we cannot properly say that the future or the past exist or that there are three times, past, present, and future. Perhaps we can say there's three tenses, but they are the present of the past, the present of the present, and the present of the future. And that's very a theory-esque. I mean, that's he's basically saying, there only is the present, and then you can only just describe it um, with different tenses. So that's, but that having said that, he also does have a very strange passage where he also seems to doubt whether the 
present has any length. So then, I, so now I still don't really quite know exactly what his view is, but but it seems like he comes down on the classical, um, a more or a more classical, I should say, uh, a theory type of view. Hey, um, yeah, the, one of the things I'd like to interject real quick there, Trevor, is I I, I felt that exact same tension you just mentioned. It, it, I mean, and forgive me, Chad, because I always know you get disgruntled when I say that Augustine seems to be contradicting himself. I don't actually think he is. I just mean that I'm, it, it's like I got confused and it seems like he presents the opposite views. Well, he does. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, if, if I do, I'm sorry. He does intentionally pose the counter. I mean, he tries to, to, you know, give some idea that there's an opposing view or he is like, well, no, like he seems to espouse it. And I want to point out when real quick, is in 11.13 when he's talking about God. Because the, the first, again, for our listeners, everything Trevor's, like the whole chapter is essentially him asserting that A view, right? Except for this early part when he's talking about God. And he says, um, uh, do, do, do. It says, uh, mm, they would see, uh, talking about God, he says he would see that in eternity, nothing passes for the whole is present. Whereas time, uh, oh, wait, 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 never mind. I have to reread this section. I apologize because I thought I had that. That's what I was perceiving there. But then he just seemed to undermine that. Maybe I missed a sentence. So there. I see the passage you're saying. In eternity, you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, in eternity, there is no such succession of things. The entirety is present, and that cannot be a time. That's how mine reads. In time, the past is shoved away by the arriving future, and the future trails behind. And both the past and future are constituted by the present they flow through. Who will catch and calm the heart to see in stillness how it is the stillness of eternity that controls the past and future without itself being either past or future? I, I, I guess that's not actually a contradiction, because that's why I paused there, because... Mine read the same way yours just did when he says there can be no time. So what he's never mind that isn't a contradiction. He's saying God exists outside of time, and from his perspective or in his world, there is no succession of of time. Time itself is separate from him. So I was reading it as or the first time as he viewed time as a whole. Um, so that's where I got confused there because that would seem to imply more of a B theory. By the way, Trevor, I have a question real quick that maybe you can clarify. Yeah. Because I've not heard the terminology A theory or B theory. But when I was in school in a philosophy of science class, uh, we made a distinction between um, what uh, Dr. Cortens at Boise State, who both Trevor and I studied under, yeah. uh, <laughs> referred to as um, substance. Oh, shoot. Never mind. That was regarding space, substantival space and space as a relation. That wasn't regarding time. But he used this notion of space as a pure relation to explain kind of a distinction between different views of time. And he, I remember him saying that uh, you could view time as a substance like space or as a relationship, you know, as a relation between temporal events, essentially. Um and when I was reading this, I thought, oh, Augustine takes that view that that time is merely a relation between these 
events. Yeah. So, so that, and I think uh, time is a relation is the most common view. I mean, I might be wrong, but just from my last metaphysics foray, I had, it seemed like time as a relation was a more common view. I wondered about that reading this. It seems like you're right. He does come to the conclusion that time ends up being a relation, though he talks in a way a lot of the time as if time is a substance because he's so worried about like where the time is you know yeah. <laughs> he's like where is it is it there i don't uh. and so i'm always like and i'm always going oh no it's just the measurement man of change but uh yeah but it, you're right i think he ends up coming down on it it's a relation though it's yeah not um super well defined relation by any means but yeah uh the, yeah there's also there are other names for the views there's uh a theory is also called presentism so mm. that that's pretty obvious and i forget what b theory's other name is i think it's called just four-dimensionalism is what i hear people call yes okay yeah that's those are the terms that dr gortens used presentism and four-dimensionalism he did use i remember him talking about at least i remember him talking about four-dimensionalism and i think I remember him talking about presentism. Yeah, Ted Sider, by the way, if anyone is interested, is a current philosopher writing on this uh, topic who he's got a lot of stuff on the philosophy of time out there. Some of it's introductory stuff, too, where he explains it through using movies uh, like Back to the Future. Uh, but also uh, this, this passage that you just uh, turned us to, by the way, I was going to say something about it eventually, so I might as well just say it now. I did think it was interesting that he's sort of affirming a classical uh, theistic view, which is that God is eternal and timeless. Um, and yet there, there is a philosopher today named Alexander Proust uh, from Baylor, who he's a, I believe he's Catholic and he, but he believes in B theory. And I know that some of his arguments for B theory, I could be mistaken on this, so forgive me, Alexander Proust, if somehow this gets back to you. But I believe some of his arguments for B theory come from uh, this classical view of God, because it seems easier to make sense of the idea that everything is uh, eternally present to God, or as to use a like the metaphor, like he sees it all as if it's present to him uh, there. It makes more sense if that were the case, if the uh, past and future did also objectively exist so that he's literally, as a metaphor I've heard given, rather than sitting at one section of a street viewing parts of the parade go by, he's sort of, you know, in the sky, just seeing the whole parade. He can see the end of the parade. He can see the beginning of the parade and everything in the middle. And he just can see the whole thing. Um and if we take that analogy, then it would make it easier if B-theory were true. So he does affirm this, and then he then seems to come down on A-theory, or something like it at least. And so there, there might be a slight tension there, um, though there are definitely A-theorists who are classical theists. Um, I think William Lane Craig would count as an example of that. Um, but it is definitely harder to explain. I'll just say that. <laughs> mm. I mean, cause he, he brings it up himself. Like the, what he says, like, so how God did you show the prophets the future? If there wasn't a future to show them, um, yep. you know, and he yep. just, and he goes, I don't have answers. These are just queries. 
But the, these are the types of problems that you run into if there is literally no future. Um, so anyway, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Trevor brought up the point that I would bring, which is the for for Augustine, there is all this is always a relationship in terms of who's viewing time from what sort of permanent seat, um, who has the permanent perspective on the parade. Um, and Augustine would say humans are sort of in the parade and God is the spectator. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, that's sort of the confusing part. At times, he seems to be thinking that he's the one outside watching the parade, and he's not sure where God is permanently consuming it all as once. And then at other times, he seems to say that we're kind of in the parade, so it's hard for us to figure out exactly what's going on. But he wants God to be the sort of permanent pole um, to to right. like attach everything to. And this is sort of this is what makes it so hard uh, to, to really nail him down. Um, Paul Ricoeur calls these aporia. Um, but he says there are these, you know, Augustine revels in the paradox. Um, and, and, and he says, so what he's trying to do is set up some sort of like, like, you know, sort of, yeah, other than that, a paradox and say that I'm not exactly sure how to solve all of this. Um, but, uh, you know, there's some there's some brilliant lines in the sort of uh, in the paradox where he'll say, um, if uh, if I say if I talk about time, I know exactly what I'm saying. But when you ask me what time is, I have no idea how to explain it. Um, and and so there is this sort of irony about time. I don't know if it's really an irony, uh, a quandary about time where Everyone refers to it. We all assume we know what it is, but then when you ask us to explain it, we go, "Well, how do we explain what time is?" Um, and that's yeah. one of these—that's one of these great lines uh, that sort of lasts forever with Augustine. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, it, it brought, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just I wanted to like slightly correct myself and also add a note to this uh, resolving one of these paradoxes. I, I said William Lane Craig was a classical theist who believes in A theory. He does believe in A theory, but I just remembered he does believe God ends up entering time. And he does and I think he partly does this in order to help explain how his A theory can work. So as soon as God creates the world, he enters time somehow. So I don't know how all that works. But it does just go to show you that uh, even amongst like philosophers today, um, God's relationship to time is like a very hot topic and wickedly complicated. And it sounds like your child has something to say about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charlie doesn't like that because Charlie knows that uh, the word was made flesh. Um, and, <laughs> and that is when God enters time. Uh, so I, I actually gave a paper on this uh, and uh, where I, I, describe the fact that yes god does enter time but enters time as christ and so one of the key things that that augustine talks about in this whole thing is we need christ as mediator um so we are distended um in time and we could have a whole conversation about what exactly distensio animi actually means in latin because no one's 100 percent sure um if this is if this is meant to be like an insult or just sort of a flat explanation or what um, it's, it's a very, it, distensio gets used as a, as a torture word in the middle ages. Um, when you are distended, that's like what happened to, uh, William Wallace when he tried to, um, uh, free Scotland, he was distended and all of his limbs were ripped off from his body. 
Um, and uh, but that that's sort of one way to use this term distension. Augustine see, so is sort of a torture. Um, Augustine may think that, uh, or he may just say like, well, we're sort of out and spread out and spread through time, and that's just kind of what distended uh, might mean, distensio. Uh, but uh, yeah. So, but anyway, my what I said in the 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 paper was that Christ has to be the mediator. That is, uh, the Word has to be made flesh. He has to take on flesh, um, so that we can uh, be and be united to flesh, so that flesh can be united to divinity. Um, and and that I mean, this is a little you know, if if uh, if you hear this. Uh, and you're thinking, yes, this is kind of a divinization argument, um, and and so my advisor um, is is sort of uh, known for are talking about divinization in Augustine um, or deification in Augustine. So so yeah, so we but at the very least, Christ participates um, in time, so that when we participate in Christ, we can also participate in eternity, which we have lost through the fall and sin. That, that is um, really interesting. Um, there's oops. always a theological register for, for Augustine. The, so distentio could mean spread out through? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it sort of means, yes, yep, spread out into, yeah. Okay, because my, my uh, I've just got the, oh gosh, what version is this? The It's the like penguin classic or something. I've got, I don't, you know, I've just got one of the more basic ones. And they titled this chapter time as mental perdurance, which I was like perdurance. And yeah, so the, and that really struck me because perdurance is actually something that B theorists use. They use that word a lot because they want to describe how we exist as perduring, not enduring where, um, cause we exist at all times at which we, you know, basically we are this one long, uh, time worm for, you know, so we perdure in that series, we exist at all those times. And then there's like times when we don't exist. So that I was, I found that that translation really interesting. So it seems like they must've, um, taken a, uh, a stance on that on what they what he meant by distentio yeah um anyway for sure one of the things i found it's super interesting about this chapter actually probably the thing i found most interesting which probably would have been better going up front <clears throat> uh at the podcast but we jumped right into i think some of the more kind of conclusory um finds of his and that's on me basically because of uh, my mental jump to Kant um, and the end of the chapter was the way he framed the question as to what time is, um, you know, just as he started breaking it down into its elements, you know, saying, you know, asking, what is it, what does the present mean? For instance, like there was that moment when he was like, um, he's talking about how the past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. So does this year exist? And he's like, well, no, not actually. This year exists. Um, that's probably more proper to say than last year or next year, but it's, you know, still problematic. You know, and he breaks it down to this month, this day, this uh, week, or this month, this week, this day, this hour, this minute. And he basically says the only thing that we can identify is the present and is actually existing 
is this very moment, which it seems, I don't know if he asserts it, is like a singularity, right? Like a, just this single moment, like that cannot be divided almost. Yeah, he gives he gives almost a um, like a reductio ad absurdum here is how I read it because he says if we suppose at least this is how my translation renders it if we suppose some particle of time which could not be divided into a smaller particle that alone deserves to be called the present like if we suppose there is such a thing he goes it flies now this is what I, I don't know if I like my translation so maybe someone can help me if this sounds strange but he says. Yet it flies in so headlong a way out of the future and into the past that no bit of it can be fixed in pause because it, and then um, adding some words, but he goes, because if it can be paused, its earlier part could be divided from its later. Thus, the present itself has no length. It's like a little reductio. Let's assume there is like a present singularity that cannot be further divided. If there were such a thing, um, then if it if it could at all be paused I, and that's how my translation says it, i have no idea what that means but if it could be paused like stopped, stopped and analyzed i think right yeah frozen i mean and then i kind of wonder like does that just mean that it needs to perpetually be in in motion see i'm not it, i i have such a hard time because this is sort of when he's treating time as like a substance for a second and speaking of it less as a relation. So I have a really hard time like myself wrapping my head around this, this bit, but yeah. So if it could be like, I guess like if God could like freeze time or like the superheroes do, or they freeze time that we would, we would somehow then be able to see an earlier part from a later part of it. And so the, so is he essentially saying length? that, I mean, I'm, he, he didn't assert this straightforwardly, but I remember that exact same section. And I remember wondering, is he saying that time doesn't exist at all? Like that time is illusory? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why it's strange. Cause then later he, he, uh, yeah. Cause this is section for me, it's like section 20. Um, I don't know how everyone's breakdowns are, but I've just got like, I guess it's three. Yeah. Section three, the nature of time. And then it's like 20 paragraph 20 or whatever. Um, uh, yeah. And he, he seems to, I mean, it's kind of, it is sort of a almost Socratic kind of section coming to a point of operia coming to a point of like, we don't know what's going on. I realize that, but he, he does just seem to go on this train of thought that would, would lend itself to say, oh, so there really isn't any, there really isn't anything going on here. then. like, there is no time since there's, there's nothing to be measured. And so there's, yeah. and it's because there's, so probably it's because there's nothing there yet. He does affirm a theory, which literally says there is a privileged present. Um, yes. So it, yeah, it is strange. I'm not, I never knew what to make of it by the time I got done with the book. I was kind of like, or this chapter, I was like, oh, weird. What do you think, Chad? Um, yeah. As far as like where he lands on this, I mean, I think he wants there to be, um it's it's i i mean i mean the best my best guess um as to how to read this is it's a relation as far as we are finite passing creatures so our relationship to it is always changing so our perception is relation 
Um, and so I guess that's beer th- B theory, right? Our, our perception of time is as a relationship. Um, and then the sort of fixed permanent present, um, I think he concedes to God, not to us. Um, and so that would be, that might be how I would solve it. I'm not a hundred percent sure if that makes sense. So you can tell me if, if I'm wrong. Uh, but, but yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, at least I can make sense of it in my head. I wonder whether, yeah, I, I wonder what Alexander Proust would say about this because he clearly, I'm sure he's like read as a guest and who knows, but he's, he's a very devoted Catholic. In fact, he literally gives arguments from B theory using the, like (laughs) the real presence of the Eucharist (laughs) as like one of his arguments (laughs) for B theory. Uh, but he, I would wonder what someone like that would make of this passage because it strikes me as someone who is trying to affirm a very classical view of God's nature while simultaneously dealing with, yeah, like sort of just classical problems involving time. Um, and especially the sort of truth maker, uh, theory i mean there's there's a lot going on here because part of what makes the the problem of future existence and past existence an issue is how do we say anything about them meaningful and he seems to make that problem really salient by straight up saying look god god uh, anything that comes out of god's mouth has got to be true and he's straight up telling the future so how Mm. how do really how do we describe what's going on there if there is no future what is god saying is he just just actually just taking the present and manipulating it um i it it's strange to say i i wonder i don't know it makes me want to i don't know read about well, maybe, of <laughs> commentaries maybe, maybe it really is just him as a christian who's embraced the you know this new world well I guess it's not new by the time he's writing it, but um, who embraced this worldview and he's wrestling with questions that either still linger from his younger years or new questions which arose and and maybe he just doesn't resolve it. All right. I mean, I think anybody who's had a background in philosophy um, and I I think, you know, being a person, being a, a fairly conservative Christian who works who's a part of a conservative Christian church and goes to, or works at a conservative Christian school, but also being a uh, guy who studied philosophy in college and whose second great love, I think after the scriptures is philosophy. Um, One major difference between the philosopher and the theologian is the philosopher feels very comfortable uh, ending in um, ending without answers um, because we would rather um, because mostly we can assess when an argument isn't all that good and if the argument doesn't give us the answer we're looking for then we wait we don't just dogmatically insist that we have the answer so we feel comfortable kind of being in that space I think where where there's still questions whereas when you're dealing with dogma, it doesn't allow that, right? You're when it's dogma. I mean, and I've encountered this so many times, so many of my friends, people I work with, they feel very uncomfortable 
when I say something like, well, I just don't know, or haven't decided, or my mind's not made up on that, or I could be wrong. You know what I mean? Um, when I teach a class on, on the problem of evil, I give arguments, the strong ones and the weak ones, and I say what's strong and what's weak, and I, I give counter arguments, and I don't necessarily sit there and say, okay, children, here is the definitive answer. Here's what you have to accept um, so that we can move on with our lives and recognize that clearly God exists and this argument is of no use against him, right? Um, I don't always do that, and other people do, you know? So maybe Augustine here is living in this tension of being a Christian theologian and still being a philosopher. And maybe he, with this issue, feels somewhat comfortable leaving it a little open. Yeah, I mean, I think as I've referenced before, Augustine is happy to do this at times, right? So, I mean, he flat out admits to Jerome he doesn't exactly know how original sin is transferred uh, to each individual human. Um, he says it, it could be through... Uh, he doesn't think it has to be through sex, um, and he doesn't think it has to be through the flesh alone because it clearly affects the soul as well. Uh, but he doesn't know if God recreates in each new person a new soul, um, and you know, and and then also taints it with sin. Um, and so he says, "I just don't know how this works." Um, but I know that there are no pre-existent souls. By the latter part of his life, he gives up the 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 platonic view that souls pre-exist before they come into the bodies um and he knows that there's original sin and he's not sure how to reconcile how that happens um and so he is he is willing to do that um and what i feel like this is as good a place as any to um use one of augustine's great jokes um in this chapter so he says uh, (laughs) you can imagine someone saying what was god doing before he made heaven and earth and he said and, and then he says I will not give the response that is so often given to this person. And then he proceeds to give that response, which is <laughs> he was getting hell ready for people like you who ask such stupid questions. Yeah. I love that part so much. <laughs> um, and Calvin reuses this joke in the Institute. So as some have said, this is one of the longest running jokes in history. Um, <laughs> but we got at least we got at least a thousand year run on this joke. Uh, That's but, amazing. Uh, so I don't know. But I, it, when Tom was speaking, one other thing that um, occurred to me that was sort of I, I don't know why this was such a striking line, but he's clearly like he talks a little bit about creation. So what happens uh, before uh, God creates? Who? What was God doing? Um, how do we talk about it before? And that's what leads him into time. So that's a little bit sort of Genesis 1-ish. But almost none of this has to do with the scriptures. And, and, and then this just caught my eye. Uh, in So for mine, it's 22-28. I think for Trevor, that might just be 22. Um, he says, For you never find the force of my burning enthusiasm for your scriptures tiresome. Uh, or okay, just above, who shall I ask about these matters? To whom shall I confess my ignorance to good effect, if not for you? For you never find the force of my uh, burning questions my uh, and enthusiasm for your scriptures tiresome. So what I take from that is a couple things. One, Augustine thinks that we can ask God any question. So, so sort of no question is too difficult for God to answer. Um, one, I think that's just important to think about, right? Uh, but the second one that's interesting is he says his enthusiasm for your scriptures. 
And and so, well, why why does that surprise me? Well, none of this has to do with the scriptures, as far as I can tell. Um, and and all of a sudden, this is a uh, this becomes about him interpreting revelation um, scripture, which I don't know. It's just sort of a, a striking moment because in my head, I was thinking like, does he is he trying to search through the the Bible to try to find an answer to this? Because uh, it wasn't clear to me that that's what he was doing. Uh, but I do think that for him, Scripture does in some way mediate and witness to God. So he does have to go through Scripture. Um, and so whenever he is, he thinks he's praying and talking to God, he's doing it through the Scriptures in one way or another. That is the place where he goes um, to commune with God. So all of this is taking place to some degree through the medium of Scripture, which I just think uh, is, is sort of worth... Uh, worth noting um, and a little bit interesting. Also, the question of what was God doing before creation, um, Augustine rejects a, uh, a, this is one of the clear distinctions between straight uh, like Neoplatonism and Christianity um, is that there is no primordial substance. Um, and there is, there is God creates by fiat. Um, and this is one break uh, that, that Christians make. Um, also it's not exactly clear that, uh, uh, that they're reading the, the reading Genesis one all that well on this account. Cause the Hebrew seems to ind- indicate, or at least doesn't say explicitly, uh, that God creates ex nihilo as it'll be, um, said later, um, in Christian theology, but, but Augustine does propose, and this is a break of God creates by fiat. Um, and, and there is no primordial substance. I had a question regarding this section that's kind of on topic, kind of off, but it's more like I wanted to look at a passage because of uh, because I'm confused if one of the words is a different word or not, because my translation okay. renders it the same word and just puts one of them in italics randomly. Uh, and it's the word time. So in paragraph 16, at the very end of it, so he's kind of in this paragraph, he's, he was talking about, again, these sort of God's relationship to time in general um, and God's eternity. He says, eternity is your today. So you eternally beget the son to whom you said today, I've begotten you. And then he says, all times are made by you who are before them. There was never a, and then my translation says time and puts it in print or uh, italics, there was never a time when time was not. And yet literally the next pa- passage starts with, there was therefore no time before you made anything. And I was like, wait, what just happened? He literally just said the exact opposite and it seemed to actually state it. So I thought my translation's got to be doing something weird here or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's really only one word in Latin for time, which is tempus. Um, so Greek, okay. you you can have you can have a couple different words, uh, um, but um, uh, yeah, but here there's there's just one. It's just uh, yeah, it's just tempus. I mean, there is eternity, um, but but that, again, that's not time. Um, which, yeah. So I, I mean, that, that would be the start. So um, do, what do you think he means then when he says there was never a time when time was not, is he trying to distinguish between like, there was never, it, it's like sort of contradictory to say 
like there's two different realms of time and God has his own or yeah. something. Is that what's going yeah. on? So, so the Latin says omnia tempora tu fecisti, which is, yeah, you made all of the times. Um, et ante omnia tempora tu es. So, and you, God, were uh, before all of the times. Um, nec, uh, neither, aliquo tempore, um, neither by any time um, was there not time. Uh, yeah, that is so, confusing. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a little... So yeah, neither or neither in any time was there not time. There was not time. Neither in any time. Is not so, time. so is it fair? I mean, so does the next passage read the same for you? Because then seventeen starts yeah. with the sentence "there was therefore," as if he's just concluding it from something, which really confuses me. No time before you made anything. Yeah, so nulla ergo tempore non feceras aliquid. So uh, therefore, there was no, um, never any time when you uh, when you did not make something. Um, oh. Because you made time itself. Because the reason why this passage, because he says things like, look, if you just had this eternal act of creation, then wouldn't our world also be eternal? And he doesn't really answer it. But then that that's what this whole, this whole thing made me wonder what the heck was going on. Because first of all, I, to my, from my translation, it seemed like a just straight up contradiction. I was like, that's weird. But then also, I, I don't know what he ends up coming down. And I, of course, since you, you're, the you're the eminent augustine scholar amongst us you'll probably be able to tell me what his actual view ended up being but like what does he really think is is he sort of like have an emanation type theory does the world just automatically come from god and it is eternal or yeah um i mean i don't know he does not want there to be anything co-eternal with god um other than the son who is the word through whom all things came into existence um but but uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's a little, um, yeah, today I've begotten you is begotten co-eternally is what they say for, uh, yeah, so, um, I don't think he wants all creation to be co-eternal with God, um, it, yeah, but um, I it and it's not exactly clear when we're saying so. One difficulty uh, that that I'm not exactly sure if this will clear up anything, but it's it's a common sort of mistake in part because uh, well, I think the Nicene Creed leads us to say it, but um, you know, we we always often associate God the Father with the Creator, but in some sense, the Son is the Creator. Um, it is through the sun, the sun as word, all things are created. Um, and so it's, it, you know, so sometimes we associate creation with God, the father, not with God, the son. Um, but, but for, um, but, but since there are no operations, which are peculiar to, um, each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity, 
Um, you know, they, they're all done through all of them, not through any one of them. Um, so it's not like God, the father creates without the son and the spirit. Um, they all, every work of the Trinity is done by each person of the Trinity. The only difference is in their relation is how we are supposed to say it. Um, and so in, in a sense, um, you know, whatever happens comes through the son who has to be first or who has to be eternally co uh, uh, eternally generated by the father, um, in some time, but it's not supposed to be before time, um, because that is itself a kind of time, I guess, or it is supposed to be before time, but it's kind of not clear exactly what we're saying when we're saying before time, because that seems like it should be another kind of time. If time is just a relationship, um, Mm, between things. Um, so, I mean, you know, uh, what, what to make of these, these sort of contradictions, I, I guess, uh, neither in any time. I, I mean, I might read, I might render this last sentence, neither in any time was there not time. Um, so in anything that we're, is worthy of being called time, there was always a kind of time, but that's not talking about God's co, um, uh, co-eternity with the sun. Okay. Uh, that, that sounds more reasonable to me rather than there was never I, a time when time was not, that sounds extreme. Um, yeah. So I don't think he wants to say that I want, I think what he wants to say, neither in any time was there, was there, yeah. Oh, we can always talk about time within times, but then there's a separate category of things and that's the father's co-eternal generation of the son. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, so yeah, since he does come down pretty hard on time had to be created. So I, I just thought that this passage couldn't literally read the way it reads in my translation. So that, that makes a lot more sense what you're saying um yeah hmm. okay well good to clear up so if you've got the penguin classic version of augustine and you happen to be really curious about that issue we have maybe cleared that up for you um. <laughs> i mean the lobe here says because you had not created time in that first sentence but it literally says because you made time itself I mean, the Latin is actually very simple. Quia impsum tempus tu fecaras. Because you made time. It's Oh, wait, that's in six. That's in 17 or 16? That's 17. That's 17. Uh, for, for mine, that's, yeah, that's 14, 17. I see what you're saying, yeah. Um, yeah. There was therefore no time before you made anything, since time itself is something you made. There was no time. Yes. Yeah, oh, that makes sense, right? <laughs> uh, you, yeah, you had to made something for there to be any time. Yeah. Okay. And that, I mean, that's all he's saying. It's, it's, it, 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 yeah, I don't know. This is a very odd uh, translation um, that I don't understand what, what they're trying to wiggle out of. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Well, Cool. Thank you for clearing that up. Although I have a funny note in the lobe 
Um, they quote uh, uh, a uh, theologian or philosopher, O'Daly, who I don't exactly know, Augustine's philosophy of mind. Augustine is without a doubt one of the subtlest attempts to analyze the phenomenon in antiquity. I feel like that's kind of like the translator making a note saying, I have no idea what's going on here. You should uh, go talk to this guy who says it's subtle. Um, <laughs> and where I feel like the translator wants to say, he's contradicting himself or I just really have no clue what's going on. So go see this guy. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty. Okay. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's good. To, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, well, we Charlie agrees. Well, the only other thing that came to my mind that I thought was pretty also interesting was as it was his reflection on the measurement of time, the tool we use, the tools we use to do it. And he actually, he says that people will say to him that time just is the revolution of, uh, or the, you know, the, the, the movement, I should say, of the sun, of the stars, of the planets. Um, and he responded by saying that, Actually, you know, any object is itself a tool for measuring time. And I think he is. It, am I right? Did he use the potter with the potter's wheel as an example? He said, what if all the stars were to stop and you just had a person on a potter's wheel? Could you not just measure time there? Anyway, it was just something that was pretty interesting because it just made me think about how our measurements of time always do involve objects. Which, as far as I could tell, again, where he was going is that what we're measuring in what we call time really isn't about time itself, but is instead about action, about the action of things. Yep. Rate of change, right? That's all we actually ever measure is the rate of change of something. Yep. And we try to point at things that have some sort of consistent rate of change. And those are the ones we use as clocks, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I just, I mean, I, there's really not much more to that other than I thought it was a super interesting section that if anybody is reading this chapter, you know, might, I think, uh, spark interest. Yeah, I actually liked this, uh, this section a lot because I was like, oh, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm digging, I'm digging what you're saying, Augustine. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'll, I, I don't really have too much else to add. There's some, there's some other interesting sections. He does a little bit more on Christ, the teacher, um, which is, uh, actually the chapter of my dissertation that I'm writing right now. Um, so I loved that section. Um, but, uh, also he, he says this great phrase, which is sort of a, uh, it's sort, it's sort of like, um, some, one of those phrases that probably, uh, uh, Pelagius would have hated, um, and, you know, uh, give what you command and command what you will, right? He's, Augustine says, in this case, he says, uh, da quod amo, amo enim et hoc tu deristi. So that is, give what I love, g- uh, give that which I love, for I love that which you have given. Um, and, uh, and so, it, I, I don't know, it's just sort of, uh, it was sort of a, like, that's kind of the kind of thing that Augustine does, these little short, quippy phrases um, but what it reminds me is that um, uh, that God has given us the capacity to love. Um, so this is what when when like the Holy Spirit 
gives you like sometimes he'll call it caritas, right? Which is sort of the Christian. Uh, sometimes you know the King James will call this charity, but um, of course we mean different than giving to a charity organization. Um, but is this sort of this deep Christian love? And it just reminded me that it, whenever Augustine goes into these like sort of long philosophical queries about something as abstract as time. Um, it's hard to forget, and many people have argued that Augustine is sort of uh, only is just very rational, and this is all about thinking. But again, for Augustine, this is all rooted in desire. Um, this is about his love for the thing which is eternal, um, which is God, right? Who has given him the capacity to love, um, and so at root for all of this, like the so the Christ the teacher element. Before he goes into his whole questions on time, he sets up that he is having a conversation with Christ who teaches him these things. Um, so this is all of this is done in relationship to a God who he loves more than anything. Um, and so what he's doing is an act of love. Um, what he's doing is an act of desire to know more about the thing that he loves more than anything else. Um, and so, uh, you know, so like we can, you know, we can have all these conversations, they're sort of mind bending, um, kind of conversations, but, and they're important. They're very, they, these are how Augustine loves God. Um, this is a deep, deep desire, um, that, that he, he says God has given him. Um, and, and he, he loves it. Uh, like, I mean, you know, so I just imagine, you know, having this conversation with Augustine and he, you could just see how excited he is. Um, so in my dissertation, I use a quote from Posidius, Augustine's biographer. Um, and he says, I know you guys are going to read stuff by Augustine and it's really helpful because he says some good things, but he, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and but then he says, <laughs> he says, but if you actually could hear him, um, you would have profited so much more. Um, and so what I take and, and part of my dissertation is trying to show um, is the, the passion um, in Augustine's words. Um, like he cared so deeply uh, about this stuff. And, and, and I mean, to the point where he loses his voice often, um, like he, he speaks so much and with such force and such passion um, that, that, that he actually has a hard time speaking. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's hard. Some of that is lost to history, we could say. Uh, but I think here and in other places, you get this, you do get this sense, like this is such a passion for this guy. Mm, yeah, that's really cool to hear that per perspective. Um, that just makes me relate to Gustin even more <laughs> in some ways, like just using, using the actual study of this as a way to love God, that part at least. I, I really, really like that. Yeah. Well, if, and if we recall, I mean, again, this is kind of stuff that, that my dissertation, like this is all just me uh, going off my dissertation, but this, this chapter especially has a little bit of a sort of um, a vibe of the soliloquy, which is another um, work of Augustine that he wrote at Casa Kayakub. So after he was converted, Augustine spends five years um, in this little garden with his mother, his son, and a couple of his friends. And they just hang out in this villa. They write philosophical dialogues like you'd read from Plato. Um, and his mother features very prominently, as does his son. Um, and they just hang out, talk, uh, drink a little wine, and think about these things. And Augustine says this is the greatest – it was like the greatest period of his life. Um, and this section has some of that 
uh, sort of dialogue vibe. He's conversing with reason, um, which is what he does in soliloquy. Um, it's his conversation with reason. Um, and that, that kind of is, is what I think he's sort of doing in a, in a little bit of a different way. Um, it's still confession uh, rather than, than just uh, a reasonable dialogue. Um, so it's, it's slightly modified, but it's still on the continuum. You can still hear uh, the hints of the other kind of writing that he does. And, you know, when he becomes, uh, uh, Pisidius is, is Augustine's, uh, like I said, his biographer. Uh, when Augustine becomes a, a, a priest, um, he, they, uh, he starts crying. Um, he goes to Hippo. He thinks if I go to Hippo, there's already a bishop and priest there. They won't ask me to be one. So he says, okay, I'll go there. Uh, and the whole crowd chants and cheers and they want Augustine and he breaks out into tears and they all think he's upset because it's such a, a dumpy little town where no one would actually want to be priest. Um, and Augustine's upset because he's like, man, I just want to hang out with my friends and do philosophy. Uh, I don't want to be a pastor. Um, and then he spends the next 37 some odd years or whatever it is. Let's see. 30, it's 91 to 30, more than 39 years um, uh, as a pastor. Anyway. Wow. Mm. We all just got a history lesson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Does anyone have anything more to say? No, it was pretty pretty short chapter with one focused topic, which was pretty strange, actually, kind of. Yeah, you're right. I did wonder about the part about, like, he wants to hear Moses, but then he says he'd rather hear, or something like, no, it's he wanted to hear what Moses had to say on this, or he would ask him if Moses would still was still around, but he says, but the truth will proclaim these things to me. I thought that part was just, I don't know more like of note. I mean, it's sort of something that he's already said, but that sort of since uh, God inspired the scriptures that we all have access yeah. to their meaning in a way, but yeah, that's right. Yeah. Very cool. Um, cool. All right. We want to call it for, for today. Yep. Sounds good. Book, 